We're going to jump right into this morning's message. Peace be with you. Uh, Craig Rochelle was on his high school tennis team, and they decided they were going to go to, uh, sorry, back one. Back a slide there. Um, Craig Rochelle was on his high school um, tennis team, and uh, they were going to await, they were out of town, they were at a tournament, and um, they were, you know, you know how it is, and people get excited, and all the people are together, and uh, they decided to go mini putting one night. And mini putting is really fun. And you've got those, all those little multicolored balls, right? And uh, the thing with mini putt is that, you know, you, you go through the course, but when you get to the end, of course, the final hole is, um, it, it's like this tube that goes because it collects all the balls because they realize that sometimes people steal the balls and they don't want the balls to be stolen. And so you have to do that. Anyway, uh, so he's going along and, and all these guys get to the final hole, the ninth hole, and they realize, wait a second, we, we would actually like to do that. We want to keep our own golf balls as a bit of a souvenir for our trip. And so they, as they kind of get to the final, final hole, they put their foot in the, in the little cup there, and they kind of just you know, flip the ball up to themselves so they can all take their golf balls home. And so uh, they get back to the hotel, and they're all chatting as they do, and uh, then the coach comes into the room. Uh, and, the, and, the, and the coach uh, looks around, and all the other guys have quickly put their golf balls away, uh, except Craig, who's a little bit slow on the uptake, and he's bouncing this clearly stolen purple golf ball off the wall. Uh, and his coach says, uh, Craig, where'd you get that ball? Uh, and he kind of responds playfully, and he, and he says, oh, gee, coach, I don't know. And the coach says, you're off the team. He says, what? He says, Craig, if you steal a golf ball, you will steal other things. You don't have integrity you're off the team. He said, wow, and he's shocked, he's surprised at this. And so uh, the coach says, that's just how it is. And so the you know, coach can see he's very concerned about this and, and Craig's upset. And so they go for a walk. And what was said on that walk between Craig and the coach was something that stuck with him his whole life. And they had a little conversation about integrity. And the coach said, you know, Craig, uh, if you have integrity, that's really all that matters. But if you don't have integrity, that's really all that matters. And so he, you know, talked about it. He learned his lesson. He was let back on the team. Uh, but this thing, integrity, this is really important to us. And integrity is something that we want to have. We want the people around us to have it as well. Um, but what actually is integrity? Now, one of the most uh, famous definitions, which is kind of a popular level definition, is that it's doing the right thing when no one is watching. You ever heard that before? It's doing the right thing when no one is watching. Because let's say there's a whole bunch of people watching you, and you're going to feel that social pressure to do the right thing because other people will praise you or they'll, they'll see you doing it, right? They'll see you making the right decision. So it's a bit easier in that context, but when you're alone and there's no one there to give you praise, there's no one there to recognize that you have, in fact, done the right thing, well, then what about situations like that? Well, the person who does the right thing when no one is watching, when there's no credit to be had, that is a person with uh, integrity. Another way to get at the idea of integrity is to think of the word itself in English. So integrity sounds a lot like uh, a word from the world of mathematics, integer. Integer. So an integer is a whole number, right? So not a fractional number, it's a whole number. So a person with integrity is a person who is complete who is complete, they're acting in a way that is wholehearted under God in all situations. Someone who acts wholeheartedly under God in all situations. So I think that's a helpful way to think about integrity. Now, it's easy to have integrity when uh, things are good. Things are good, everything's coming up roses, and people agree about what decision to make or what pathway to take, and, and everyone's on the same page. It's easy to have integrity in those things. It's more difficult 
when people don't agree and when there's stress and when there's pressure in the midst of uh, a situation. And in fact, a psychiatrist, M. Scott Peck, says that that's actually the stress for goodness. So if you want to go back a slide, um, Catherine, this is what he says. Stress is the test for goodness. The truly good are those who, in times of stress, do not desert their integrity, their maturity, and their sensitivity. And I think that's a very good word. So what happens when, when, when it's a stressful situation, when people disagree, when the future is uncertain? And those are the times that we often need to show integrity the most. Maybe someone that we care about in our family, um, a friend really needs us, or maybe people need guidance from us in a future that is uncertain. We want to have integrity in those situations. And so our key question today uh, is this. It's how do we have integrity under pressure? Okay, how do we have integrity under pressure? And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at John 18, because all of a sudden in the story of Jesus, we've been tracking along line by line in the Gospel of John. We've just had a couple chapters of Jesus teaching very intensely with the 11 apostles. Uh, Judas has already gone to do his betraying work. That'll circle around to today. Chapter 17 is all about this prayer, powerful prayer that Jesus has for his disciples. Then and now, today we're getting into the betrayal itself, so the pressure is getting intense. And we're going to go through the text, look at what it says to us, and we're going to look at two examples, so uh, how people respond to these highly pressurized situations. Uh, Jesus and then Peter, and then we're going to circle back at the end and say, okay, what might we learn about having integrity under pressure. Okay? So let's follow along, and we're going to go to John chapter 18. I'm reading from the ESV. So when Jesus had spoken these words, and that's just what I described, the teaching to the eleven, and then his high priestly prayer in John 17, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Uh, Now, the name of the garden isn't specified here, but we know from this telling in Matthew and Mark that this is the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers, Roman soldiers, and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Now, why would they go with weapons? Well, remember in the background to this that many people are awaiting a Messiah, and a lot of people felt it was going to be a political Messiah, someone who would lead an armed revolt, a bloody revolt against the Romans, right? And also, so these Romans are coming there, uh, they know that people are saying that Jesus is the Messiah, and so there needs to be enough of them there, and they need to be armed in such a way that they can put down any potential threat or armed uh, uprising, should it be the case. Uh, They're also there with lanterns and torches, So we know it's night, night has fallen, and so not only has physical night fallen and descended, but there's kind of a spiritual darkness which has descended upon the whole situation uh, as well. And light and darkness is a big theme in John's Gospel, so way back in chapter 1 when we first started, uh, we were reminded of something, that the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And so that's kind of a theme verse that will come up time and time again. And so as the spiritual darkness falls, we need that reminder that even though things are getting tough and difficult, the darkness will not overcome God's light. And we will see that played out as the story goes on. Verse 4, Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Now, what in the world is going on here? 
Uh, this is one of those very enigmatic passages, but <clears throat> the key is in the phrasing that Jesus says. Now, in our English translations of the Bible, it says, I am he, which seems very normal. But of course, in the Greek text, it simply says, I am. And so recall that as we have gone through the Gospel of John, there's been several I am statements from Jesus. And they're all constructed with a very specific phrase, ego eimi, I am ego eimi, the light of the world. I am ego eimi, uh, the gate for the sheep. I am ego eimi, the bread of life. So it's all, when Jesus says before Abraham was, I am ego eimi. And what we need to remember that, and we've always reviewed this, is that when God reveals his name to Moses at the burning bush in Exodus 3, his name is I am. Ego eimi. And so when Jesus says these things, he is speaking in a way that specifically people would recognize he is taking upon the name of the God of Israel and applying it to himself. Right? He is God come to us in human form. He's saying things that only the God of Israel can do. He is doing things that only the God of Israel can do. And here in the Garden of Gethsemane, he says, I am. And at that, it literally blows people away. Well, maybe not away, but it certainly blows them backwards. They, Judas and the guards fall to the ground. So something physical has happened as Jesus utters his name, the divine name of God. Uh, Puritan, uh, biblical commentator Matthew Henry here at this point says, they are all thunderstruck, uh, which I like. Um, uh, there's, of course, the uh, hard rock band ACDC with a very famous song, Thunderstruck, uh, which I still think is played in like 80% of hockey arenas across Ontario. It's like that song will not stop. Anyway, and I, and I don't really think that ACDC was thinking about this passage from John 18 when they named their song. <laughs> uh, but now every time you hear Thunderstruck, you can think about Jesus thunderstriking the people as, the, as they go back. But I think there's actually a purpose in this. Why would Jesus do this? I think he's teaching them something because in the moment, this moment in the Garden of Gethsemane, they come, they're the powerful ones, they're the Romans, they've got the swords, they've got the numbers. And Jesus is there with his little meek band of followers. They look like the weak ones. It's as if in this moment Jesus is teaching them something, saying, hey, you think you're the ones in control? You're not. You think you're the powerful ones here? No, you're not. All of this is unfolding according to the plan of a God who sits on the throne, who is sovereign, almighty, and good. It's as if he says that a little bit. Is, I think it's a foreshadowing. They fall to the ground. It's as if this is foreshadowing the day when all knees will bend, every tongue will confess that Christ is Lord, right? I think this is a bit of foreshadowing uh, going on in that powerful uh, statement. Verse 7, so he asked them again, who do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. And he had said that back in chapter 639. And this is him being the good shepherd. He says he was the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The good shepherd takes care of the sheep. And this is him fulfilling that role. Verse 10, then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Okay, so Peter, uh, feeling the intensity, feeling the pressure, he draws out a sword. This is probably a shorter sword called a gladius. He takes it and he strikes, uh, he cuts off uh, the right ear. Now, I actually think that Peter in this moment, it's not just like the guy standing there still, Malchus, and Peter goes and slices his ear off. When someone goes to stab you, you move. So my sense here is Peter, in this intense moment, goes to stab Malchus in the face. Malchus moves, and Peter only gets his ear. That's what, I'm, that's what I sense is, is actually going on here. 
And so this is a very intense moment. And then John, the gospel writer, knows the name of this servant as well, Malchus. And I think there's some irony here too, because the name Malchus means king. And so there's some irony going on here. He, the one who, who, who thinks he is powerful, is standing before the lowly Jesus, but in fact, Jesus is the real king, standing before the person who is named king, but actually isn't. So I think there's a whole bunch of kind of a series of contrasts that are going on here in, in the text. And then so Jesus said to Peter, put your sword in its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Rhetorical question. The answer is yes. But what does he mean? It means, shall I not go through the suffering the Father has prepared for me? Shall I not go through this experience of suffering? I've told you about this, Peter. I told you I'd be handed over to sinners. I told you I'm going to have to suffer for the people. I told you all this. This is the Father's will. Verse 12, so the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, who was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. So again, all these contrasts, all these notes of irony. He's like, okay, it's better that one man, Jesus, die for the people. And in his mind, he's thinking, this Jesus is a pretended king. He's a troublemaker. It's sullying the reputation of the Jewish people. Better just tuck him away. Better to deal with him so that the rest of us don't get in trouble with Rome. That's like what he's thinking. But of course, something higher is going on. Jesus will, in fact, die for the benefit of the people, but he will do so on the cross to pay for the sins and brokenness of the world, of all who would come to him. Now, that larger picture, that nuance is lost on, on Caiaphas, but that's another double meaning of what's happening here. Verse 15, Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Now, the other disciple is not named, but uh, many scholars think this is John, the gospel writer. He's just not naming himself, but it's probably John. He knows all these intimate details of what's going on. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door, so the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, probably John, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. So Peter's now inside in the, in the courtyard. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? And he said, I am not. So this is one, the first of the denials of Peter. It's a denial. This is a story of contrast, back and forth, different, different ways of approaching things. This is also happening here too, okay? This is a dangerous, challenging, stressful situation. In that situation in the garden, what did Jesus say? I am. What does Peter here say? I am not. I think we're supposed to see this contrast. Jesus, in the midst of the intensity, the pressure, everything else, he says, I am. He is who he should be. In the presence of his heavenly Father, Peter says the exact opposite thing, I am not, and he denies God in the process. Verse 18, now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, so our question has been, how do we have integrity under uh, pressure? And I said that there's going to be two examples that we're going to look at. Um, but what I'd like to do as, as we do that is I want to give you a phrase that we can use, and this is like a filter or a lens. So that as we get in these high-pressure situations and we want to have integrity in those situations, this is something that we in our minds can quickly refer to that will help us to be people of integrity. Okay, here it is. It's trust God, not your gut. Okay? 
Now, here's what I mean. Trust God, not your gut. Now, there's an expression, trust your gut. And many times, don't get me wrong, many times our gut actually serves us well. There are times when we trust our gut in certain situations, and it proves right. Let's say someone's talking to us, and they're trying to sell us something, and we think, ah, something's off. This person's trying to scam us, and later we find out that it's some scam, right? And our gut, our instincts served us well. Let's say in another situation, you meet this new person, and your gut tells you that, oh, I'm not sure if you should trust this person. And uh, later you find out this person's been gossiping about you, or they're doing A, B, and C to try to thwart you or, or do something against you, whatever it happens to be. And you think, okay, my gut was right in this situation. And so sometimes it is right, not all the times. And what happens as people today is we can elevate our instincts or our feelings or our gut, whatever our gut is telling us, onto the throne of God. And so all of a sudden we think that that is actually the most important thing. God must be speaking if my gut tells me something. God must be speaking if I have an instinct about something. If I have a feeling about something, that must be God. Not necessarily. The reality is that we're humans and we've got all these feelings and instincts going on all the time. Sometimes they're right, sometimes they're wrong. So we need some sort of tool of discernment to figure out, wait a second, how should I act? How should I have an integrity? And so this phrase, trust God, not your gut. Now I wanna give these two examples to see how this plays out in the story. And the first example is Peter. Now in the Garden of Gethsemane, Peter is there. Jesus has forewarned them. Everything that's going on, they're there. Darkness is there. The soldiers have all come. And maybe Peter, perceiving there to be some danger, he takes out a sword and he goes to hit Malchus in the face. Now why does he do that? His gut is probably telling him, it's dangerous. We've got to protect Jesus. Or now is the time. Maybe, maybe Jesus was wrong. Maybe we do need to overthrow the Romans. And, and, and he goes with his gut as opposed to trusting God, okay? Second example with Peter, he's in the, um, uh, in the courtyard, and Jesus is there, and of course the intensity is there. Jesus has now been brought in. He's been arrested. And uh, the lady asks him, are you not one of his servants also? Uh, and what does he say? He says, I am not. He denies Jesus. Think of that for a second. Now, why did he do that? My sense is his instincts or his gut told him to do that. Peter, we know from the text, is married. Maybe he's thinking about his, his wife. Um, maybe he's thinking about something else. Maybe he's thinking about, I just don't want to get implicated in this. I don't want to go to jail. I don't want to get, I don't want to get hung on a cross, which the Romans are notorious for doing, which is a horrific way of torture, a way of extinguishing someone's life. He goes with his gut. Okay. Now, the other example, of course, is Jesus. Jesus in the garden, he is accosted, and he's, he's facing all this intense pressure, and I don't want you to think that Jesus, because he is Jesus, he's the son of God, that he doesn't have feelings, or that he's not feeling the pressure bearing down, because he is. In Luke's gospel, a story is told of Jesus, he is in such anguish in the lead up to his own torture and crucifixion that he's crying tears of blood on the ground, for goodness sakes. That's who's someone who's feeling the pressure of what's going on, so it's not like he has this steely resolve and doesn't have emotions. He's feeling the pressure of everything. Everyone comes to his presence. All this is happening, and he says, after Peter takes out a sword, he says, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that my Father has given me? In other words, shall I not go through this experience of suffering that the Father has set out for me? He's trusting God, not his gut. His gut probably was like, run for the hills. Get out of here, Jesus. You, you have the authority. You could just call down fire from heaven and, and, and consume all these enemies, but that's not the plan. He is to suffer and die on behalf of the people. And so he trusts God, not his God. And so the application is simply this idea that we need to trust God, not our God. 
okay? And so as we go through situations, we need to think, okay, here's some intensity, here's some pressure that I'm in, someone's relying on me to make a decision, or, the, the, you know, no one's watching, but the future is uncertain, and I need to sort of do something, I need to make a decision, what am I going to do? Well, you need to trust God, not your gut. Now, here's the thing. You'll say, how do I know what's God and what isn't? You can't know God's will if you don't know God's word. And that's a fact that we need to come back to time and time again. You cannot know God's will if you do not know God's word. And what happens in this time where trust your feelings and your instincts and everything that who you are is in you and all that's perfect. No, no, no. We need to continually be thinking about how are we feeling? What are our instincts? And, and conform these with the power of the Spirit to, to the very will of God. And we do that. We learn about what it is in the Word of God. And so all of a sudden, if we have some instinct that goes against what the Scripture teaches us, we know that that instinct isn't from God, and so we need to be using this filter. We cannot know the will of God if we do not know the word of God, which is why, as God's people, we are going to worship, we are praying, we are reading the scriptures, we are listening and watching to godly things, and we are studying the scripture. We're in a small group, youth group, whatever it happens to be, we are doing everything we can to know the will of God through the word of God. Okay. So, as a closing thought, as I want to encourage you this, in this with all the various situations in which you find yourselves, um, I just want you to think about someone in your own life, uh, someone who you knew to be a great person of integrity. Think about someone. Maybe it's a grandparent. Maybe it's a parent. And this is a person who, who has trusted God, not their gut. Uh, they have sought to do the, the good and the godly thing. They have sought to do the right thing, not just the easy thing. They have sought to be wholehearted. And they're not perfect, but they have sought to be wholehearted under God in the various situations. Maybe it's a youth group leader from a long time ago. Maybe it's a coach you had. Maybe it's a friend. Think of that person of integrity and how much they have blessed you in your life. Next, what I want you to do is I want you to imagine a couple generations from now, so in the future, okay? So this is the future. Things are different. There's flying cars, right, all around. Uh, what else might be in the future? Wouldn't it be great if there's green, lush grass all the time that you don't have to cut? How would that be a great invention for the future? Um, oh, eggnog with no calories. That'd be awesome. <laughs> if we last much longer, maybe that's one of the, the blessings of some of these. Uh, okay, so, so, so in the future, I want you to imagine that, that someone a couple generations from now, maybe a generation down, maybe two generations, maybe three generations, they're sitting in a sanctuary, maybe like this one, and they're listening to a preacher like me, and he's preaching about John 18, and he's talking about integrity, about trusting God, not your God, about doing the right thing and not the easy thing, about trying to be wholehearted under God regardless of the situation. And, and, and he says to the people there who are gathered a couple generations from now, hey, I want you to think about someone in your own past. I want you to think about someone who has integrity, someone who blessed you and someone who did the good thing, the godly thing, regardless of the situation. That person was able to bear up even under pressure and that person was trustworthy because of it and that person was a blessing. Now I want you to imagine that that person who was gathered, a generation, two generations, or three generations, the person they thought of in their mind was you. Amen. Amen.